Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's special program commemorates Billy Graham, a giant of faith. It includes two live songs from Crusade services, two sermons by Billy Graham, and a rare interview with his mother. William Franklin Jr. was born on November 7, 1918. With a calling from God, Dr. Graham lived a life devoted to Scripture, bringing people to Christ and a love of his Lord. He achieved national recognition in 1949 after appearing on a Stuart Hamlin radio show broadcast from Los Angeles. Throughout his career, Dr. Graham preached to as many as 215 million people in live audiences in over 185 countries. This isn't counting the additional millions he has addressed through radio, television, and the written word. We start off with Steve Green singing, Lift Up a Song. And tonight we welcome for the first time in any crusade service, a young man whose picture you see there in the bottom of the left-hand side of the bulletin, a man by the name of Steve Green. Of a song, strengthen yourselves in the joy of the Lord. Let your heart dance. You are His joy, and He's your reward. Lift up your hands. Together we are the new temple that follows His loving command. We are the temple, the body, the bride of.
We follow Steve Green with the first of two sermons by Billy Graham on loneliness. My text tonight is the Psalm 102, beginning with verse 6. Psalm 102, beginning with verse 6. I'm like a pelican of the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. My wife, who is with me tonight, uh, was in a, a bookstore in London. Thank you. I'll, in, I'll introduce her tomorrow night. This is the first night she's been in a meeting in many months, and I'm so thrilled that she could be here and be with us in this crusade because she has been a little bit under the weather for the past few months. And I appreciate the prayers of all the people that are listening or watching or that are here tonight. But she was at Foyle's bookstore in London, and a man came around in 1954 now, came around and uh, he said, are you Mrs. Billy Graham? And she said, yes. And he said, I thought so. He said, I want to tell you that I'm so lonely and so miserable. He said, I'm, I'm just thinking of suicide, ending it all. Life's not worth living for me. And my wife had some tickets and said, here's some tickets. You could come out to the arena to hear my husband preach tonight. He said, well, I, I might do that. So he took the tickets. She didn't see him or hear from him for a year. A year later, we were back in London. She went to the same bookstore to get some books, and this little man was still there. And he was as bright as a cricket and jumping all over the place and smiling from ear to ear. He said, Mrs. Graham said, I was there that night and said, I accepted Christ. My family was converted, and we're the happiest people in London. And uh, he said, you know the Scripture verses that won me that night? And she said, what was it? He said, you know that passage in Psalm 102, I'm like a pelican in the wilderness. I'm like an owl of the desert. I watch and am as a sparrow alone upon the housetop. She had never thought of those as being evangelistic verses. But he said, that's the way I felt. Have you ever watched a sparrow on the housetop? Or have you ever seen a pelican in the wilderness or ever thought about one or an owl in the desert? The loneliness of it. It speaks of loneliness. And that's what I would like to talk about tonight. Mrs. Evans has already spoken to us very eloquently and she has almost briefly summarized what I want to say tonight. Time magazine a couple of weeks ago states that the most impressive play on New York's Broadway this season is So Long on Lonely Street. Why? Because that's where so many people live, as Pat Boone said. As Elvis Presley said, I feel as lonely as hell. He said his most popular song ever was Heartbreak Hotel. That's why George Bernard Shaw's play, Heartbreak House, has made such a comeback. Barbara Hutton used to pay teenagers $1,000 a night just to talk to her. One of the supreme human problems of modern society is loneliness. There's a new book out entitled Alone in America, The Search for Companionship. Loneliness is a common experience that we all have from time to time. Often it seems hidden away, implied between the lines. 
insidiously woven in the fabric of most of our social problems. Loneliness propels many people to abuse alcohol and drugs or other people. Jonathan Yardley in the Washington Post comments, is the loneliness of a person feels today in a single apartment complex really any different from the loneliness a person felt in 1886 on a barren plain in Kansas? Is there a difference or is it the same kind of loneliness? Probably not. The causes of loneliness may change, but the nature, he said, of the beast itself does not change. He called loneliness a beast, and it is indeed. Adolescents and young people as well as old people get lonely. Married people can be lonely within marriage. Single people get lonely in their singleness. And the successful and the wealthy can be as lonely as the unknown and the unfortunate. And the modern city is a lonely place. Washington can be a very lonely place. A New York psychiatrist said recently, New York City is the loneliest place in the world for millions of people. Think of it now, walking down Fifth Avenue, walking down those great streets in New York and all those lights on Times Square, there's more loneliness per square inch than any place except maybe Beverly Hills, California. An American University study reported that university students are the loneliest people in America, followed by divorced people. Alcohol and drugs are efforts to escape loneliness. Drugs take you on a trip, and being drunk makes you feel that you've got someone with you. You cannot drink your way out of loneliness. Most young people turn to drugs for kicks and then get hooked, but thousands turn because of loneliness. A magazine cover story has this week our neglected children. It said that actually most of them are properly clothed and fed, but something is missing in the lives of countless children, and many of our children are lonely. Jesus Christ promised, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. And he also said, I'll never, never leave you nor forsake you. Do you know Christ? If you know Christ, you'll never again be alone. The Los Angeles Times Syndicate carried a story earlier this year. A well-known 32-year-old man, his name is known to all of you, says that his life was a living hell for 16 years, driven by lies, fear, and false security. He said, we look at people in show business and in the public eye, and we put them on a pedestal and think them to be different. A big house in Beverly Hills, he said, I had expensive cars, success and recognition. None of that, he said, guaranteed happiness. He said, I had it all, a lifetime of wealth and fame at, by the time I was 13 years of age. But by 13, I was also into drinking. And by 16, I'd experimented with all the drugs. And he says that they were killing me, him, and he couldn't stop. In the next 30 minutes, in the next 30 minutes, 29 American teenagers will attempt suicide. Almost one a minute around the clock are attempting suicide, and over 50% of them because of loneliness. 
They feel unloved or unwanted. No friend, no parents that care for them. Reaching out and not finding that friend or that parent that should be there. It's a neglect of the spirit which leaves them lonely and prone to drugs and alcohol, and all too often it leads to suicide. And one of the key words in the Bible is communion, from which we get our word communication. We're separated from God, and man is lonely because he doesn't have God. Have you ever been in a crowd, in a party, at a reception? The drinks are flowing. You're having what you think is a good time, and all of a sudden, just for maybe 30 seconds, you feel lonely. It sweeps all over you. And then you go on laughing and have your good time. What is that loneliness? Psychiatrists call it cosmic loneliness. A loneliness for something out there, you're not sure what it is. But you feel that there's something else in life that you haven't found. That is a loneliness for God, and there's no cure for it apart from knowing God. And you know God through Jesus Christ. Yes, loneliness. Then there's the loneliness of society, homeless people on the streets of a big city. Jesus Christ once looked at a helpless and paralyzed man, and this man was in sort of a hospital portico. And they believed that, and he was sitting around the pool, and they believed that if you got into the pool first, you would be healed. And he couldn't get in the pool first. He had no friends to help him. And 38 years he had sat there, paralyzed. And Jesus went straight to him. And this man looked up with pitiful eyes to Jesus and said, Sir, I have nobody to help me in the pool. This bundle of loneliness and human pain had been buffeted by the surging tides of people, but Jesus singled him out. Just like tonight, he singles you out because he knows you by name. You are important to him. And he comes straight to you tonight as though you're the only person in the whole world. And he says, I know your heart. I know your psychic. I know your problem. I know your loneliness. I know your need of a healing in your heart and mind and soul. And from that day on, he became the friend of Jesus, and Jesus became his friend. And he can become your friend tonight. Dr. Elson is on the platform, and he baptized President Eisenhower. And he helped us in our first crusade here in Washington, and we're delighted to have him. And they asked him what President Eisenhower's favorite song was, hymn was. And he said, what a friend we have in Jesus. Any president, any leader of government, every night we have a number of senators. We have a number of senators here tonight. I get a list every night that are here. We have a number of congressmen here tonight, cabinet members here tonight. And I know in their work, they would tell you that their lonely moments that they have to face decisions of conscience, of pleasing a constituency back home that doesn't understand the problem, 
and they sit there in a place of dilemma and many times all alone. What shall they do? What a friend we have in Jesus. And you can thank God that you have so many people in government today, many of them unknown to you, that really look to God. And on this day of prayer, in which thousands of people have prayed for this country, I'm certain that they feel our prayers and our president way out in the Pacific feels our prayers because God is the God of the universe. I believe those people in the Ukraine that may be suffering an unknown disease because of this atomic situation will feel our prayers as well. I think of that person tonight in New York in a dingy apartment who never receives a letter, who never has the hand clasp of a friend, or the country and the small city girl seeking fame and fortune in the big city, disillusioned and disappointed. Christ can be your friend. Loneliness is found everywhere. It can be found in the inner dimensions, a thirst of the Spirit. The roots of loneliness are within each of us. A poll recently revealed that fear and loneliness take over a child's life when a parent suddenly vanishes through divorce or death or separation. Whether it's the mother or the father, the child suffers. A romance breaks up, a job is lost, a grown child leaves home, a death takes place, a sense of loneliness. My father died many years ago. I still get lonely for him. He never had but a third grade education. But I'd like to sit down and have a good talk with him now at my age because he died just about a little bit older than I am now. Then there's the loneliness of suffering. When you're suffering, the world ends at the foot of your bed. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, said the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. A doctor wrote the other day that stress and chronic anxiety bring on heart attacks, arthritis, and feeds cancer, and often cuts 20 to 30 years off normal life expectancy. All too frequently it's brought on by loneliness, a sense of emptiness, and suffering for which there seems to be no cure. But I say to you tonight, there is a cure. And that cure is Christ. Bring him into your heart. Let him cure that loneliness. He alone, Christ alone, can turn our suffering into satisfaction, our tests into testimonies, our trials into triumphs, and our pain into peace if we'll let him. In Revelation 21, the Scripture says, God shall someday wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for all the former things are going to pass away. When you come to Christ, no matter how much you're suffering psychologically or physically or spiritually or morally here, there's coming a day when there'll be total healing 
and we're going to have a world of glory for those that know Christ. Do you know Christ? I'm looking forward to that day. People say, why do you look forward to dying? I do. I don't look forward to the process of dying, but I look forward to death because I know that in the next minute I'll be in the presence of Christ. I'll be relieved from all the bondage of this body. And all the temptations and all the pressures of this life will be gone. And what a glorious future we have in Christ. Then fourthly, there's the loneliness of sorrow. You know, the older I get, the more funerals I know that I ought to attend. And the more funerals I'm attending. Jesus wept at the funeral of a friend. And he said on that occasion, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in him shall never die. What a wonderful promise we have. That resurrection morning or evening or afternoon when the graves will open and your mother and your father and you will be rejoined and the family will gather together. A lot of my family are here tonight. I think we have three of our children here tonight and several of our grandchildren. I can't keep count of them anymore. One of the high officials of this government asked me the other day, haven't you told your family yet what causes children? And uh, I said, I'm trying to. But we love every one of them. I hope they have a lot more. We only have 17 and one on the way. We'd like 27. Then there's the loneliness of sin. Rousseau wrote in the age of optimism, man was born free, just take away his chains. Rousseau was wrong, dead wrong. We are born in sin, the Bible says. David said, behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born in sin. The seed of sin started at the moment of conception. And it goes on and on and on and on until tonight in the sight of God you are a sinner. And the word sin means lawbreaker. You've broken the laws of God. And if you've broken the laws of God, you are under the sentence of eternal death. All that's implied in the word eternal death, all that's implied in judgment, all that's implied in hell is yours. Unless, of course, you repent of your sin and turn to the cross where you can find wonderful forgiveness. Because you see, God is a God of love, a God of mercy. He loves you. He has the hairs of your head numbered. He knows all about you. And he wants to come into your life and take away that loneliness. And he wants to come into your life and give you new hope and new assurance, no matter what your condition is. When are you free? Only when you come to Christ. Jesus promised if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. But many of you are in the chains and bondage of sin. A professor of psychology says two basic causes, feeling that we don't belong and no one understands. How many times have you said, well, they don't understand? Or I don't belong. 
There was an article in the press the other day about punk rock kids in England. And this lady that is writing the article says, they're a generation of alienated young who are going nowhere and looking forward to nothing. I don't know. I'd say that they're young people for whom Christ died and he loves the punk rock kids. And he died for them. And he would receive them and love them. Loneliness began in the Garden of Eden when man turned from God. That was the beginning of it. Man and woman living together in perfect harmony with each other and with God. But they declared their independence of God. They had a revolution. They said, we'll go our own way and make our own decisions. We don't need God. But they soon found themselves so lonely they hid themselves in the forest. They sowed some fig leaves to cover their nakedness. And Adam heard the voice of God saying, Adam, Adam, where are you? Now, God knew where he was, but he wanted Adam to know where he was. And God is calling you by name tonight. Jim, Susie, Mary, John, where are you? Where are you? Where are you in relationship to God tonight? Where are you in relationship to Christ? Far away? A long way off? The world's greatest artists and writers and composers and kings and queens and carpenters and plumbers, all classes of people feel keenly the loneliness of guilt. On the Phil Donahue show the other day, a taxicab driver was saying that you'd never believe how many passengers pour out their confessions of infidelity to him to try and get rid of their guilt and how true that is. In John 13, we read the story of the Last Supper. The, he prophesied the betrayal of Judas, and the Scripture says that Judas went out and it was night. Perhaps there was a time when you knew the fellowship of God's people. There was a time back there before you came to Washington that you went to church and you had fellowship with God and you read the Bible, but you've gotten here and you've gotten Potomac fever and you've sort of rationalized to yourself, well, very few people go to church in the District of Columbia. I'll go out and play golf. I can worship God on the golf course. Or I can worship God going down the street playing with my bicycle. Oh, I can worship God in some other way. But you know the trouble is? You can worship God on a golf course, but that's not the reason you go to play golf. You go to play golf. You don't go to worship God. He went out and it was night, and you'll find that it'll be night when you neglect spiritual things and you neglect the fellowship with Christ. And there's no loneliness as bitter and as the loneliness of a person that claims to be a Christian but doesn't live the Christian life. You can call him a backslider, call him anything you want, you give it any name, I don't, I'm not going to fuss about that. You need to come back to Christ. You need to come home. You need to come to Christ. Never God's intention for you to ever be lonely. Oh, I know there are fleeting moments of sensual satisfaction. 
but it creates a bitterness and a loss of the sense of pleasure that no psychiatrist can cure. The Bible says that the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. Then as Koch mentioned a moment ago, there's the loneliness of the Savior. Spent much time in the company of the lonely and the outcast. Think of him as he went from place to place. He didn't go to the homes. He went to a few homes of the wealthy. But he spent his time mostly with the poor, the oppressed. And they loved him. It says the common people loved him. They listened to him. They followed him. The woman at the well that had had so many husbands. Jesus spent time with her, counseling her, helping her, and she was converted, and she became an evangelist immediately and won an almost entire village to Christ. The Scripture says that Jesus was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and loneliness. Even though great crowds surrounded him at times, he was alone except for the presence of his Father. Even at the end, the Scripture says all the disciples forsook him and fled. The crowds who on one day were shouting hosannas and throwing palm leaves down deserted him and began to yell, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What loneliness he must have felt. And then they hung him on a cross and his blood was flowing and they taunted him, come down, come down, you saved others, save yourself. And when he said that, when they said that, 72,000 angels in heaven pulled their swords ready to go rescue him. And he said, no, I love them. I'm dying for those people in 1986 in Washington, D.C. I'm dying for those people in generations unborn. I'll stay here and bear their sins. I know they've committed every type of sin. I know they've broken the laws of God, but I'm going to bear their penalty and their punishment and take it upon myself. And the loneliness of that moment when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? No theologian quite understands what happened there. But in that moment, God took your sins and mine and laid them on Christ, and he became guilty of our sins the loneliness of it all for you and for me and how anybody can reject the Savior, I do not know. Christ hanging on the cross experienced the ultimate loneliness. And then seventhly, there's the loneliness of death and judgment. In Hebrews 9, it says, it's appointed unto men once to die. I was just thinking about this audience. How many of us will be alive 50 years from now? I know I won't. How about 25 years? How about 15 years? How about a year? Many people in this audience will be gone a year from now. How about a week? Maybe on the way home tonight, we don't know. Life is uncertain. God does not give us the date of our death. We could die at any moment. 
and come face to face with eternity. What a lonely moment that would be if you don't know Christ. Yes, there's coming a judgment, and you'll have to stand alone at the judgment. And then eighthly, there's the loneliness of your decision. You cannot depend upon parents or friends. You must make this decision for Christ yourself, and that decision means this, that you repent of sin. And what does that mean? You say, God, I have sinned. Will you say that tonight? Sure you will. You know you have. Then the next part of repentance is, I'm willing to turn from my sins. The word repentance means change your mind. Turn. I'm going in one direction in my life. I'm willing, Lord, if you'll help me. I can't do it alone, but I'm willing to turn and change directions. And any attempt to deal with sin apart from that will not work. And then by faith, you receive Christ into your heart by faith. You can't prove it. You cannot come intellectually to God alone. You must come by faith and trust Him. If in search for the antidote to loneliness and drugs and alcohol and sex and encounter groups and psychological experiences, it often only serves to mire us deeper in despair because the remedy is Christ and His death and His resurrection and His promise of a future life with Him. Loneliness is often God's way of letting us know it's time to reach out. The psalmist who was so lonely also wrote, Oh, my soul, why be so gloomy and discouraged? Trust in God. I shall again praise Him for His wonderful help. He will make me smile again, for He is my God. Christ experienced that loneliness so you'd never be lonely again. And as was quoted a moment ago, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking at your heart's door tonight. He says, I want to come in so you'll never be lonely again. Let me come in. He won't force his way in. The door has to be opened from the inside. You have to open it. We receive hundreds of letters every day in our office. Well, thousands of letters. And they pull a few of those letters for me to read. I can't read them all, but I try to read as many as possible. And a letter came to me this past week. I've just finished reading your book, Approaching Hoofbeats. On the last page of the book, you suggested a prayer I could pray. I was at a point in my life where I felt there was no help for me. I was severely depressed and dissatisfied with my life. I was constantly fighting with my husband and many times on the brink of divorce. Everywhere I turned, I felt loneliness and a desperate feeling that life was getting away from me. I had so much hate in my heart that it eventually began to affect those around me, especially my children. One night, I was alone. My husband was working late and the children were asleep. I felt the most urgent need to get down on my knees and ask God to help me. I had so much hate in my heart and didn't want to feel this way anymore. I told God I was lost. 
I ask him to come into my heart and take all the hate away. Afterwards, I felt a tremendous peace come over me. No one but God himself could have done this and saved our marriage and my life. Another letter. One time in my life, I wanted to kill myself because I felt no one really loved me. But one night when I was watching a telecast, you said, remember one thing, Jesus loves you. That moment until now, I have been changed because I believed it. I received him. He changed my life. That could happen to you tonight before we leave here. I don't believe that you're here tonight by accident. I believe you're here in the providence of God because this is your night to find Christ. And I'm going to ask you to do something we've seen hundreds of people do every night since we've been in Washington. I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and come and stand in front of the platform and say tonight, I want Christ in my heart. You may be the best church member in town. You may be chairman of the board in your church, but deep in your heart, you're not sure that Christ lives there. You want to be sure. We now follow Dr. Graham with an interview with his mother. During a memorable weekend in Charlotte, North Carolina, your host on this broadcast visited an impressive but modest Southern colonial home, the home of Mrs. Frank Graham, mother of the famous evangelist Dr. Billy Graham. And I thought of some of the questions you would have asked. For example, what about some advice to parents, Mrs. Graham? The verse found in Proverbs, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And then I've always taken as my clue, Deuteronomy 6, that we are to train our children when we rise up in the morning, and when we are sitting by the way, and when we are walking, and when we go to bed at night. And that seems to me all day long. Seems a bit old-fashioned, but it's God's method and his admonition to us, and I don't know how we uh, can depart from that. And then we think of Hannah as how she commanded her child to the Lord before he was born, and we know the result in Samuel's life. Billy Graham's home, Billy Graham's mother. These have left a mark on the famous evangelist also. This, on this Sunday morning, is the story of how Dr. Billy Graham was converted to Christianity. He became a Christian at the age of 16. We had a revival meeting in Charlotte uh, under a tent, a tent which seated about three to 4,000 people. And we were reluctant to go the first week, but some of our friends and neighbors were going, and we were quite curious, and we went also. We were Christians and uh, had been very faithful to the church to the Sunday school, to prayer meeting, and all of those uh, church activities during the years. And I'm sure both of us at that time had been really born again. We knew the Lord, but we had never taken any part in a revival meeting. And after we had been going about a week or ten days, Billy Frank went forward one night, and we knew it was real because when we came home, he just threw his arms around Mother and says, Mother, I was saved tonight, and says, I know I'm going to be different. I can never forget it. To God be the glory could be the motto of the Graham home. To God be the glory, 
This is the reason given by the mother of Dr. Billy Graham for his phenomenal success. I shall never forget the way Mrs. Graham stated it. The question, just why do you give God the glory? Because there is no other answer. I'm sure that we had so little part in the home, in his ministry. We always sought to have family devotion at night and always a scripture calendar on the breakfast room wall, and that was read every morning. Whether the school bus was coming and they were hurrying and scurrying, they knew that Bible verse and comment had to come at the breakfast table just as well as breakfast. We had that. But then we didn't live close, really close to the Lord. We sought to carry out Christian principles, and as I've already stated, we were very, always very faithful in the church. But we feel truly the Lord has just um, gathered Billy up and has used him in this worldwide ministry for his own mouthpiece, and that we, really we had very little to do with this. We now follow Mrs. Graham with Dr. Graham speaking on John 3.16. I want to speak to you on the subject that I would preach on if it were the last sermon that I would ever preach. And I want to preach to you as though it's the last sermon, and I want you to listen as though it's the last sermon you'll ever hear. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, people ask me, and when I go to universities, and I want to thank Dr. Haldeman for having me here in December uh, at the university and give the commencement address. It was a great privilege for me. And what a wonderful experience I had. And I carried away a glow in my heart for being at that, co at that commencement. But university students ask questions, and I spend a lot of time at universities and a lot of time at colleges. And they constantly ask the question, why is there so much suffering in the world? They're also asking the question, what is the purpose and the meaning of life? And uh, we, in studying to go to China, we find that they're asking the same questions that American young people are asking. What is the purpose and meaning of life? And they're asking it in Russia and in all of Eastern Europe. We've now preached and held crusades in all of Eastern Europe except Bulgaria. And to go to a place like Poland or Hungary or Romania, as we were last fall, and see thousands of people, 50 and 75,000 people lining the streets and in the streets listening by amplification. You never saw such hunger, searching for purpose and meaning in their lives. They haven't found it in Marxism. They haven't found it in capitalism or communism. So they're searching for some other ideology in their book. There's a book out called Beyond Ideology. And I'm talking today about something that's beyond the ideologies that are dividing the world. Our world is filled with disease and poverty and hate and loneliness and boredom and emptiness and psychological problems and violence. In the newspaper just today, I was reading The State, and I couldn't help but notice how many crimes, 
and wars and bombings there were just on the first two pages in the world. In some cities we go to, they don't even print the assaults and the rapes and the, and the murders that take place the night before. They just list them because there's no room in the newspaper to carry the stories. There are so many. And then the suicides that are taking place. Suicide is the second greatest killer among university students in America. Why? And now we're reading about packed suicides among teenagers. And young people are saying, I can't take it anymore. The pressures of life are too great. And people are asking why, if there's a God of love, why doesn't he do something about it? We read that God loves the world. All right, if God loves the world, why doesn't he stop all this suffering, all the poverty, all the hunger, all the racial prejudice, all the fighting that's taking place in Sri Lanka, and the killings that are going on, and that madman yesterday, a day before in Texas, they just went in and shot up a couple supermarkets. People were killed and wounded all over the place. Why do these things take place? We follow Dr. Graham with George Beverly Shea singing, I'd Rather Have Jesus. When I was living in the New York City area back in the early, my, my early 20s, uh, and do, doing some auditioning and taking a few vocal lessons on the side, and I, I guess you'd never know that. But um, there's one audition that particularly was of, well, it was a temptation to me because a contract was offered, but at the same time, my precious mother had found this poem, and she thought it would speak to my heart and prayed that it would, and it did, John. And as I read over the words, I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. And this contract might have possibly led into a different life than that I'd known, and there might have been a certain amount of fame, I don't know. But the song or the words spoke to me, and I just had to sing them, and, and this simple melody came to mind that morning. And it's been my testimony, my heart testimony ever since. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than a houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the 
rather have Jesus than anything this world.